0: Hello and greetings, and welcome to another edition of the New and Living Way, a Hebrews podcast. I'm Ethan, and very thankful that you've joined us today as we continue to pursue what God has made known through the Hebrews author. We continue in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of christ greater wealth than the treasures of egypt for he was looking to the reward by faith he left egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured as seeing him who is invisible by faith he kept the passover and sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them as we've seen the hebrews author is right in the midst of this long discourse we've called the hall of faith uh, a pro where he's had this constant uh, you know, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. We've already seen how he's spoken of the creation. He has spoken of Abel and Enoch and Noah, and primarily of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was a primary point from verses 8 uh, through just about verse 22, where he also introduces Joseph. This whole section is rooted in the conclusion of chapter 10. In chapter 10, he kind of wrapped up everything he had said beforehand and and kind of led out with that with they need to endure in faith, that the the man who will be righteous in the sight of God lives by his faith. And we are not to be those who shrink back into perdition, but to, to maintain that faith. And so he's trying to really encourage the audience to see the kind of faith exhibited by the people of old to embody that faith, to share in that faith. And that's why we've been focusing on this narrative about what he's focusing on in the narrative. Uh, For instance, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we could bring Joseph into this as well, uh, there are a lot of stories of faith we could tell about them. We could talk about, as Paul does, how uh, Abraham believed in God, it was reckoned him as righteousness, and why it's so important to understand that he was reckoned as righteous before he was circumcised, and that uh, it is by the promise of faith um, James talks about how he certainly still obeyed. The uh, Hebrew's author mentioned obedience. The Hebrew's author certainly emphasizes the faith, but for the Hebrew's author, it's living according to the promise. It's the fact that he was dwelling in tents and he did not actually obtain what was promised, that he was looking to uh, God and for the city that God would give them, that they were sojourns and exiles, they could return at any time. And that's especially clear looking at Isaac Jacob and Joseph we could talk about events in their lives and how they manifested great faith in their lives but the Hebrews author kind of focuses on how they spoke about their children how the future was prophesied and how they they gave promises to their children because again looking toward the fact that the future uh, was going to have all these promises God was going to fulfill. That they were not—they were living in the present, but their situation was not well grounded in the present in terms of everything around them. They lived in the promise, looking for the reward, and you could tell that same story about Moses, but the Hebrew author author doesn't. And the story about Moses that Stephen talks about, using these same events in Exodus chapter two, is to focus on how. God sent a ruler to Israel, but Israel rejected him because he's showing how Christ would be very much uh, the same way. And you can talk other things about Moses. And Moses, the most humble man that's ever lived. Uh, Moses, his uh, great... Perseverance. We can even talk about Moses' great hiccup there where he uh did not honor God as holy in the people and therefore did not enter the promised land. There's lots of things we could talk about in terms of Moses, but the Hebrews author has been really focusing in detail on the events of his early life, of Moses before Moses meets God in the wilderness. And so we've been, we're in the middle here of this section, verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. And we've looked in the details of the text about the faith of Amram and Jochebed and how they uh, preserve Moses' life. And we're going to have to return to that conversation in terms of what did it mean for them to not fear the king's edict. And. Now we're looking at Moses and the big contrast he was given. He was given the choice to live in the luxury of the life that he had been adopted into or to choose to follow the people of God. We saw last time how we don't know exactly how it went down. That's not told to us. But the Hebrews author has well seen in the Exodus 2 narrative that at some point Moses had made the choice, I am going to identify with my Hebrew brethren as a Hebrew and no longer as an Egyptian. And that he was willing to accept the consequences of that choice, which meant that he was going to uh, live according to that promise of faith or the reward, because all he was going to get was to be a slave. Because again, at this point in the narrative, Moses certainly isn't acting as if he is ready to be the chosen one uh, to lead Israel. Uh, he doesn't even want it when he is offered the, the ability to do that uh, in the wilderness. And so what can Moses foresee? All Moses can foresee is continual slavery until God fulfills his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the fact that when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in chapter 3, Moses doesn't go, who? Gives us that impression that Moses already knew who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. And the Hebrews author certainly is focusing on that and emphasizing that. And that's where we get this reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of Egypt's treasures because he was looking for the reward. And the one detail we need to add on to this that we had begun talking about last week is to understand that, yes, here that metaphorical uh, understanding of the allegorical way of looking at it is coming to the fore uh, where Egypt was seen as the world. It became very easy to allegorize this. Philo of Alexandria, uh, for whom there's a lot of associations, connections, attempted to be made of the Hebrews author in terms of the Alexandrian school, uh, looked at Egypt as the world. And it's very easy to see why. Uh, because what did each Israel have to do? It had to leave the bondage of Egypt and endure the wilderness to enter the promised land. And so if you're going to obtain salvation the people of God, you need to come out of the ways of the world around you, i.e. you have to leave Egypt... Therefore, it's very easy to read that back that Egypt can be seen as the world. And so, the Hebrews author is very much laying this in front of his uh, Christian brethren. You can live in the world. You can live in Egypt. You can be adopted into Egypt. And you can enjoy the wealth of Egypt. But what is that going to get you in the end? If you choose to be identified with the people of God, you're going to be marginalized. You're going to suffer the reproaches of the Christ. But if you're looking to the reward, what you will obtain is of such greater power. So in a sense, there's a, there's a, there's some continuity with the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Because the focus there was that they could have returned at any time. They lived as soldiers' exiles intentionally. They made that choice to live by faith and their promise to come. And that's certainly here as well. But with the Moses story, that emphasis is very much in he had left it. He had left it. He had it all and he left it. And now this gets us to verse 27, which is a very challenging verse. Because the Hebrews author says, Moses left Egypt not afraid of the anger of the king, but endured as seeing him who is invisible. And the reason this is challenging is when you go back to Exodus chapter 2, the text literally says when Moses, see Moses is saw that egyptian oppressing a hebrew he goes and kills that egyptian buries him in the sand the next day he sees two hebrews fighting and when one hebrew says you know he says stop that what are you doing what are you doing and he he intervenes One, one says what are you gonna are you gonna kill me like the egyptian you killed yesterday and moses said surely the thing is known and he was afraid and then pharaoh you know set out a decree to kill moses and moses fled to the wilderness You read that text, and the very natural conclusion is Moses was afraid for his life from Pharaoh, and he therefore left Egypt to go into the wilderness. And so because of that natural inclination to read the text that way, a lot of the commentators will suggest a possibility that this is not about Exodus 2, this is more about Exodus 14. This is about Moses leaving with the people and uh, did not fear Pharaoh as they were leaving Egypt. And there you don't have the fear part in that story as much, uh, although the people certainly feared uh, Pharaoh and his armies. uh, We don't really see um, Moses doing that. But the big problem with that is that in verse 28, it's talking about Moses keeping the Passover. And then in verse 29, the people crossed the Red Sea. And the thing is that the Hebrews author so far has been pretty chronological in all of the conversations. Even we, we, in fact, that has led to this kind of weirdness in the text, where uh, verses eight, uh, nine, and ten um, are very much comparable to verses thirteen through sixteen, but in between is this conversation about you know the birth of Isaac. Um, so. Are we to really think the Hebrew's author has gone out of chronological order here to resolve this tension? Uh, Well, let's also, again, this is why we say we need to go back to what did it mean for Amram and Jochebed to not fear the king's edict? And and this is where we are willing to introduce a very strange being afraid while not being afraid situation. Uh, The fact that Amram and Jochebed hid the child. Uh, was because they had the good common sense to know that if they went around parading the child around, it would get the uh, authorities to notice, and they would come and kill the kid. So they kept the child hidden, and it's, when they couldn't keep the child hidden anymore, that's when they put him in the basket and to lead him on to his fate. And so there is a healthy respect for law, there, healthy reverence, a healthy we're going to do these things so that we don't run a af- you know that we don't a foul that you could interpret as fear. Uh, because if there was no law against it, they wouldn't have acted that way, right? Um, And so, Amram and Jochebed may very well have been apprehensive about the king's edict. They knew that the king's edict was there. They were afraid of maybe it being done to their son, but they were not so afraid of the king as to kill the child. And so they maintained this opposition, this defiance, in the face of the danger. When We look at the text in chapter two. We could be very, very literalistic about this, very legalistic about this, and suggest that Moses, when he's killed this guy, he's afraid because the thing has been made known. Then we're told that uh, Moses, that Pharaoh tried to kill Moses. Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. The text never actually says Moses was afraid of Pharaoh. It's a, it's a very reasonable conclusion based on the evidence, but the text never comes out and says it. And this might be no situation where we have fear but not fear. That Moses knows if he sticks around and says, La, la, I'm Moses, here I am, he's going to get killed. And so he flees to preserve his life. That he's maybe more afraid of what, the fact that he has no standing among his people because to his people he's the guy who killed the Egyptian. And so he runs off to Midian. He runs off into the wilderness and I think this is what the Hebrews author is really focusing on, because notice how he concludes this. He did not fear Mo, the, the edict of Pharaoh, but he, but he uh, endured as seeing him who is invisible. In many respects, to me, that last half of the verse is ju- more challenging than the first. What does it mean that he endured as seeing the one who is invisible? Hebrews authors talked about the invisibility thing before at the beginning of chapter 11. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Uh, that what is visible came from what is invisible. And it's the as seeing him who is invisible. Um, the as there. It's not that he you know, Moses saw the face of God. That's what the text comes out and says. Now later on, you know, it's the angels. It's the presence of God. Uh, but he saw the burning bush. He saw God's back. He was his face shone because of the fact that he was in the presence of the presence of God to the point where his face radiated from that radiation. Uh, Paul makes much of that in 2 Corinthians 3. The Hebrews author isn't denying that. But think what the Hebrews author is trying to do, and this is a really important major faith lesson, getting back to what's the Hebrews author doing here is that part of the distance that gets created between Moses and Israel, Moses and a later audience, is uh, none of us have seen a burning bush. That wasn't really burning. None of us have seen uh, the back of God. None of us heard the voice of God on the mountain. But I think the Hebrews author is trying to focus on here is that Moses had his trust in God. Why did he run to Midian? Fleeing... Egypt, you know, you can say, well, he didn't go up to Canaan because there were Egyptian authorities there, certainly, but trust me, the Egyptians had all kinds of officers all throughout the Sinai. Uh, They were there to keep the Bedouin in check, and there were the turquoise mines in the Sinai, so he would have to go through plenty of Egyptian territory uh, to get to Midian, and it's not like there weren't Egyptian officers who couldn't find him in Midian. Uh, but he, it's important here maybe to know what is understood by scholars. And we even see in the Exodus text, and maybe the Hebrew's author, you know, we're not going to necessarily say the Hebrew's author thinking this, although he very well might, is that Yahweh was considered a desert god. Yahweh was the god of in, in, that was out in this desert area. And it is not a very hospitable place for life. Uh, but when Moses is driven to go to Midian, to go to this place where God dwells. He doesn't quite know it to the extent yet, but he's driven to go there. And that's as though seeing him who is invisible. Moses in Exodus 2 is Moses before Moses is Moses, right? Before he's the man of God. And yet Moses becomes the man of God because he already has the faith that's going to lead him to become the man of God. Very important to note that when Moses speaks to God in chapter 3 and 4, his lack of faith is in himself, not in God. It's not, oh God, you can't do this. It's, who am I to do this? Part of that meekness and humility. uh, It's also an escape mechanism. But he certainly is convicted that the God who is speaking to him is able to do what he says he's going to do. And so, but the Hebrews author puts all this beforehand. And so, in a sense, the whole point of the Hebrews author is trying to say is lost if it is the Exodus 14 moment. Because by then, God has given all kinds of proofs and assurances to Moses. This is the point where Moses has no, no assurance from any, kind of, from any kind of supernatural experience. But yet he has that faith. This is the point at which Moses is most relatable. The Hebrews author is saying, just as Moses chose no longer Egypt, but chose his people, he did not really fear the wrath of, of, he didn't really fear the king. He was driven to go out to see the invisible, as though seeing the invisible. He had no expectation, no reason to believe that God was going to appear to him. But he had put his trust in God and let out. And that is why God called him. We, we talk about this all the time, and absolutely, God does not call the qualified, he qualifies the called. You know, there's a reason we say that, that God will make you what you need to be to serve him and glorify him. At the same time, like with Saul of Tarsus, like with Moses, uh, God is calling people that he knows will do it, will step up and will take on that mantle. Uh... Not every uh, random uh, Israelite persecuting Christians received a vision of Jesus on a road, like Saul did. And so Moses here is already a man who can have the faith to do it. God sees that, and that's why it happens that way. Then with the Passover thing, we have a complete redirection. Um, And the reason is that why he kept the passover uh this is where the hebrews author is returning to this the the themes that he's already been talking about and we see that in the sprinkling of the blood because the putting the mantle on the doorpost seems to be something that would much rather require a painting we could imagine it's more painted than sprinkled but he goes with the sprinkled imagery to again associate us to what's going on here what is the passover The Passover is this final plague that is the reason that Pharaoh lets Israel go. The Passover is the moment of liberation. And the liberation comes because God passes over Israel and destroys the firstborn. It is uh, the protection of Israel from the judgment of God to deliver the people of God from slavery. Jesus does not die during Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. He does not die in the Festival of Weeks. He does not die on Pentecost. He dies on the Passover feast because he is providing a new Passover. Uh, Paul will say that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slaughtered. Uh, why would he say that? Because it is through Jesus' sacrifice that we have liberation from bondage to sin and death, that Jesus has freed us, it has provided our independence. And it's done through the sprinkling of the blood. That uh, the blood is what protected the Israelites as the destroying angel went through. And so the Hebrews authors again invite to see that parallel. That here we have the Passover being kept and the blood sprinkled. That Moses establishes it. And it becomes a ritual for the people of God. Uh, Moses keeps it. Really, all the people keep it. And in inaugurating it, they keep it. Because what ends up happening is what happens that first time is what is replicated time and time again. So that every generation of Israelites shares in the Exodus story. That's why we, on the first day of the week, partake of the Lord's Supper uh, as if we are sitting Thursday night uh, and Jesus is about to be killed, because we are sharing with Jesus and his people at that moment, uh, because that is being a continually reinaugurated thing. As the Hebrews authors made clear, it's not that Jesus is actually being re-slaughtered every generation, but that we share in what Jesus has done once for all by participating in that supper. And so uh, the Passover, which may seem remote, is being brought near. And the uh, Hebrews' audience is invited to see the faith expressed in participating in that and to see their faith being uh, participating uh, in the quote-unquote new Passover uh, in the Lord's Supper in the liberating act that God has done in Jesus uh, to his glory and honor. We look forward to continuing by looking at how the Hebrews author continues and we look at the stories that you would expect to hear from the wilderness and the conquest. You are probably going to be disappointed. And we're going to talk about what's going on with what the Hebrews author does talk about and we're really going to start talking about the importance of what he is not talking about and look at perhaps some reasons why. Uh, But may the Lord bless and keep you until then.